Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, Brazos Valley, Waco, Palestine, listeners on the internet. This is Thaddeus Romanski. This time we have Father Robert Sirico, co-founder and president of the Acton Institute in Lansing, Michigan. He is a Catholic priest and is especially interested in questions concerning the free market, the human person, Catholic social teaching, and we are delighted to have him on today. Father Sirico, how are you? Very well. Trust you're all well as well. Well, Father, please start out and let us know about your, your call to the priesthood. Tell us that story briefly. You know, I have a rather complicated uh, call to the priesthood because uh, what happened early in my life, I grew up in a, a culturally Catholic family in New York, mm-hmm. Italian-American family. Mm-hmm. And early on, uh, First Holy Communion and thereabouts, uh, I was fascinated with the church. Though my family wasn't particularly devout, we were very strongly identified with the church. But by the teen years, now this is in the uh, early 1960s, uh, I began to have conversations with friends of mine who were not Catholic. And this ran the gamut right across the board and was interested and was curious and went to the rectory and asked the priest some questions and was just dismissed. Basically, oh, don't get all into religion kind of stuff. You know, you just want to be a normal kid. You don't want to be a fanatic, which is a very odd thing to give uh, as advice to a young man. And uh, I just kept talking to these friends and even began going to their churches, which wasn't something one did uh, in those days as a Catholic. Right. And um, to make a long story short, I drifted from my faith. I uh, became involved in a variety of uh, religious groups um, in the later 1960s and into the early 1970s, the Jesus Movement at the time. Uh-huh. Um, I lived on the West Coast. I moved to the West Coast in my uh, uh, late teens, early 20s, and then drifted from my faith altogether, became involved with secular religious, I'm sorry, reli- political movements. Um, and this is now the tail end of the anti-war movement, the Mm -hmm. beginnings of the feminist movement and the gay movement and the Mm -hmm. union, uh, movements, uh, farm workers and, and the like, the great boycott in those days and found myself really all of my fervor, all of my passion was put in to activism. And, um, that lasted for about three, uh, or four years until I ran into a buzzsaw in the form of a friend of a friend of mine who introduced me to some writings on economics. And we used to have real vigorous debates. And what's intriguing about this particular period of my life now, I'm in my uh, mid-20s, was that it tripped some levers. It, It resulted not only in my clarifying my goal uh, in terms of activism, helping to understand the fallacies of uh, socialism and schemes of redistribution of wealth and the like. But toward the end of that whole period of initiation into free market thinking, I bumped back into God Mm. because I came to the question of who human beings are. Who is it who has the right to private property? What is it that 
is the creative stimulus in the human person. And uh, this is about the time of the election of John Paul II and, um, uh, of course, his whole personalist yes. uh, philosophy that would begin to unfold during his long pontificate. And um, I ended up going to confession, recovering my faith, and altering my lifestyle. Um, this took place over a period of years. And then a uh, spiritual director I had at the time uh, said to me, really a confessor, more or less, he said, um, have you thought of the priesthood? And I said, Father, you know my life. <laughs> you know what I've done, what I've been involved in. And he said, yes, I do. And that's what prompts me to ask that question. Have you read St. Augustine? Yeah. And uh, he put into my hands the confessions of St. Augustine, and I began to see my life through his life. I'm sure. And really recognized his yearning for God. And that at every point in my life, when I was involved in the evangelical movements of the day, when I was involved in these political movements of the day, I really came to understand that I was looking for the true and living God who could could answer the riddle of the human mystery. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided to uh, pursue the priesthood. I'm leaving out tons of stuff sure. for the sake of time here, but sure. uh, I did go into seminary. I was ordained a priest in uh, my mid-30s by that time mm-hmm. and uh, began my priesthood. Uh, can I take I, you... I to tell you, that really saved my life. It, it's odd to think of economics as being a way into the church, but yeah. <laughs> it was for me. Um, so your history of, of activism and then your in, interest, uh, love, I, it sounds like, almost, uh, of economics... Uh, and you you come in you come back into the church and you become a priest. Where in there did you get the idea of of putting the Acton Institute together and and why and what what work does it do? Well, early early on, even in my seminary training. Um, now this is then after I had um, had my return to the church and after I had begun reading secular economists. Mm-hmm. Milton Friedman and Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek and, and other economists of that sort who were concerned with the secular question of economy and the production of wealth and things like that. But in seminary, um, now I was reading philosophy and theology and uh, trying to you know grapple with these basic core ideas of um, the faith, the uh, capacity of the mind to know the truth, and St. Thomas Aquinas here was incredibly helpful. Uh, But then I I began taking note of this movement that I hadn't previously been familiar with. This, of course, is in the 1980s, so it's in the earlier stages of this, uh, known as liberation theology. Mm -hmm. Liberation theology was an attempt on the part of some theologians to effectively baptize Karl Marx. Now, I was familiar with the Marxian concepts class struggle, class warfare, dependency theory, uh, redistribution of wealth, things like that. Uh, But to hear it expressed now in biblical language and in theological language, and by people who were at that point more theologically astute than I was, drove me to the books. And so I began reading the whole corpus or you know, a large chunk of the corpus of liberation theology, and found it presented in in my um, theological formation. I'm very grateful because at that time I had some of the 
the best minds uh, at the Catholic University of America, even people I disagreed with who were nonetheless uh, good thinkers and right. who would challenge me. I'm talking about um, uh, the then father, Avery Dulles, who later became Cardinal Avery mm-hmm. Dulles, mm-hmm. who became a real mentor of mine and a personal friend and <sighs> celebrated my first Mass with me, as a matter of really? fact. John Tracy Ellis, uh, who was a great American historian, Monsignor yeah. John Tracy Ellis. Charlie Curran, uh, Father Charles Curran, uh, who teaches at Southern Methodist University there in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, he was uh, removed from his position at the Catholic University. I had his last classes at the Catholic University of America um, because of his dissent uh, with regard to Catholic uh, teaching on, on certain areas of uh, morality. Uh, a man I disagreed with on a regular basis in class and out of class, but was a gentleman and uh, always a fair interlocutor. I learned a lot from him uh, in terms of um, you know how to how to uh, understand the other argument before you disagreed with it. Yeah, these are some these are some trait these days. These are some giants of the Catholic intellectual project in the United yeah. States in the mid twentieth century. You're talking right. about and, here. Uh, Michael Novak became a good friend of mine in wow. that period of time as well. He wow. wasn't at the university, but uh, it was in Washington, D.C., where I was studying John Richard John Newhouse. I was just and, about to ask about Father Newhouse. <laughs> oh, he's a good friend, a good friend. I uh, uh, had probably uh, too many cigars and too many scotches <laughs> at his home. <laughs> Is that possible? Is it possible to have too many cigars and scotches? I don't know. Um, it depends on how you um, uh, consume them over what period of time. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. But uh, so this was my, you know, my formation. And then out of that, I decided I wanted to respond to liberation theology and, and its variants because it manifests itself not just in liberation theology proper, but in movements for social justice, economic justice, uh, the environmental uh, concerns, uh, the uh, various concerns, uh, you know, uh, across the board. And I was going to pursue a PhD in economics, and my superior said, no, we want you to do some pastoral work. And so I did. And then I had the idea that what maybe I needed to do was form an institute that would study these ideas. So it wouldn't just be me studying the ideas, but enabling other people to study them. So mm-hmm. Uh, in 1990, with a young man that I had met, uh, at, he was studying at Johns Hopkins. I had been studying at Catholic University of America, He's much younger than me. We founded the Acton Institute, which provides a kind of platform for debate and dialogue and conferences and research on these various kinds of questions having to do with the interrelationship of markets and morality and, and that whole spectrum of ideas. Mm-hmm. So it ends up being that even though I don't have a PhD, I employ a number of PhDs <laughs> through through the work of the Acton Institute. Chris likes to say, um, uh, we hire people who are smarter than we are, which <laughs> proves that we're smarter than they are. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice nice way to work that compliment. You know, I th- I think that the, you said 1990 is the founding date? Yes. What an, what seven a, years ago. What an um, interesting time. To, to put together an institute like that. I mean, right at the right as the Cold War comes to a the quiet end. All right. You put you put a, a place together where this intersection of markets and morality is going to be right. its focus and just how that has proven to be 
uh, of such import over these last yes, several did. decades? Because the, the next year, you remember, 1991, mm-hmm. was the promulgation of the encyclical by uh, St. John Paul II, Centesimus Annus. Yes. Uh, which really... Um, Hundred years since Rerum Novarum, for those people right, not not right. familiar, the hundredth the hundredth year. Yes, that encyclical informed and elevated my entire idea of what I was trying to do, you know, in founding the institute, and it really informed it um, and, and enabled us to go forward. Yes, now we're living in an age when. These question, these kinds of questions, as I sort of alluded to, have only become more pressing. Um, yes. The, the the crash of two thousand eight certainly, I think, accelerated and intensified a lot of these these concerns. And then uh, now we just lived through an election cycle with trade, immigration on everyone's lips. Their yeah. their impact on employment. Um, the health of the economy in general. And much of this is related to that concept of globalization. And that really came on the scene. It, it was in the, it was in the um, academic sphere before the end of the Cold War, but it really became, came to the forefront in common parlance, globalization through the rest of the 1990s and on into the first part of the, the 21st century. Encapsulate for us, in your view, what what is globalization, and what are its um, what are its positives, and what are its its negatives? Well, you're absolutely right in identifying this, and and this captures a whole plethora of of topics and debates. Um, I begin on this topic of globalization by saying, you know, really, uh, it was. Christianity that invents globalization. Mm, in a sense. Indeed, uh, the the whole outward thrust of the Christian faith, the evangelizing thrust, when Jesus gives the great commission to the apostles to go into all the world, this begins a trajectory of openness to others, of um, building. The, the the first thing is to build missionary outreach, so as to communicate the gospel. But that building outreach historically, you see, was uh, historically, you see it identified with or at least accompanied by uh, business interests looking for trade routes and uh, goods uh, and resources that could be brought back to Europe. And so you have uh, a sense of the religious and the um, economic combined in those things in a primitive way. Um, I think the best key to um, unraveling some of the confusion about globalization and making the distinctions that you asked about, the the positive and the negative parts of it, um, is to see globalization not as just one thing, but to see it as in a political dimension and then to see it in the dimension of human interaction. Uh, In the political dimension, you see globalization manifest through things like the Maastricht Treaty or various treaties of the UN or various trade treaties that are uh, heavily involved with politics, uh, the control of markets internationally, uh, the, the various kinds of 
multi multinational corporations that have an influence on the formation of policy and trade policies in particular that whole world of the UN if you will and then you also have this reality that what globalization is is people trading with other people to the extent that they can do that uh, and ignore <laughs> the political, which is very difficult. Uh, people moving to where they can uh, advantage themselves and their families, the communication with other people and other cultures. Uh, so there's this human and more natural dimension to globalization. That globalization represents a cultural exchange, an ethical exchange, an intellectual exchange, a human exchange of productivity and cooperation. The political has its own culture too, but that culture, uh, even when it claims to, to be religiously neutral, has a certain philosophy, a certain ideology associated with it. And very often, and because it is politically centered and heavily influenced by presuppositions of progressive politics, mm -hmm. of command and control, tends to be uh, anti-natalist, that is, uh, fearful of human population. Uh, and so it propagates ideas that try to stem birth rates because it fears that the more children people have, the less goods are going to be available for the rest of us, the kind of lifeboat. In economics, we call this the zero-sum game. Um, it has a whole ethos. I mean, when you're around these international organizations, you pick up a kind of culture. You can, you know, even though these are people from different parts of the world, there's a certain kind of elitist culture that yeah. goes on there. I think this is the deleterious form of globalization that the church has repeatedly warned against, that you see in the writings, in particular in John Paul II, but also in Benedict XVI. Um, and they were very, very uh, careful to balance these two forms of globalization. In the pontificate of Francis, you, you see a, a much simpler, raw embrace of the poor and a less nuanced approach to what the distinctions are that I'm I'm trying to make here. Yeah. Um, he wants to warn against the the elitism and the um, command and control of the strong against the weak, but doesn't often elaborate on the importance of business and the way business can counter a lot of that when it's free. So, right. and that has to do with his own formation, his own priorities, and his own. Um, um, you know the place in the world that he grew up in in, in Argentina, so it's a very interesting uh, complex of issues that we're confronting today. And if we don't understand the the basic functions of a market economy and what impedes human productivity, then we can get very confused very quickly. Yeah. Now you've you've anticipated my next question. And I, I had a chance to look back at an address that you gave in 2000 at the Vatican Conference on Family Law and Globalization. And I'm going to quote a, a portion of your remarks. But the reason I want to bring this up here is I kind of cast your mind back to that point in time. This is this is one year before September 11th, which, which changed so many things, right. changed so many priorities. But I, I recall there being a sense of 
of optimism, a sense of, of uh, opportunity at the end of the 1990s coming out of the Cold War for what this new, um, this new world order, for lack of a better word, uh, could look like. You know, of course, we had these utopian uh, pie-in-the-sky ideas like uh, Fukuyama's The End of History that, that came along and then Huntington with this very sobering clash of civilizations approach. Right, but right. still, there was, the, there was a great deal of, uh, of op- optimism. And you, you encouraged the, the, you challenged the audience there to, quote, move beyond rhetoric to construct the framework for pro-family legislation, pro-family cultural attitudes and practices, and pro-family economic situations. That has largely fallen on, on deaf ears across the West in the 17 years since you, you gave those words. What why why do you think that is in a I nutshell think it's because these yeah that's a very good question i think it is because um thus far those elites that i spoke about that form of political globalization the the internationalist tendencies uh that are expressed through the policies of the un and their allied NGOs and mm-hmm. organizations that you you already named some of the names of the the folks involved in that uh, don't value the family. They see the family as uh, you know replaceable. Uh, they don't um, have a great value for these cultural um, tendencies that form and stabilize families. Uh, and so naturally, they're going to see, especially as I said earlier, growing families as a problem. I mean, <clears throat> here's the fallacy, if I can just put it in a very simple way. Mm-hmm. If you see the human person as fundamentally a mouth that needs to be fed, you're going to see that entity, that person, as a threat. It's consuming. Mm-hmm. That's all of the concern about consumerism, which is legitimate. But if you fail to see that the human person is also a mind that creates, uh, especially when that mind is free and when that person is free, then you see human beings as contributing to the overall prosperity of society and its cultural enrichment. And I think that families, when they are free, to act without the kinds of interventions or restrictions on their lives that you see in the policies very often of groups like UNICEF and and these other international uh, uh, watchdogs, um, then those families can flourish. And, you know, when people are left generally to themselves, where they have the right to their property, the right to what they produce, uh, the products of their labor, the right of immigration, the right uh, to safety, the right to land ownership and the rule of law, all of those things, they will produce more than they consume. They will sustain society and they will culturally enrich society. It's not to say that all culture is equal, but we can at least have the conversation about which which cultures promote human flourishing to a greater extent than others, and which cultures uh, hinder that. I also think that there's a the loyalty question. 
the the state has increasingly come to see um, family as an as a, a threat, uh, as a place of uh, alternate loyalty, where people put their yes. their loyalty to their family first, then their neighborhood, then their region, right. rather than to the state. And the state, right. uh, as as the nation state has grown more powerful and uh, has grown in its um, has extended its reach into various areas of, of human life. Uh, it increasingly wants to have no other uh, opposing loyalties to it. Right. I think you. Put and that was the right genius on. of the American experiment was balancing all those competing loyalties. Right. And now right. that is beginning to be uh, yeah. in question. I think you uh, you have identified the key thing. You know, Lord Acton said is probably his most famous saying, very often misquoted: "Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely." And he didn't invent that. Uh, what he was reflecting is a trait in humanity, in particular in the state, that when it accumulates power, it wants to be the monopoly. Uh, you see that even in Jesus. Um, when he's given the coin and asked about the tax, is it just to pay the tax to Caesar? And he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. He's making a distinction between power and authority. Power and authority are both forms of constraint. But power is a form of constraint that is external to the person. Authority is a form of constraint that is internal to the person. So, um, Mm-hmm. Power is the police force. Power is the government. Power is the courts. Mm-hmm. Authority is the family. Authority are the norms and the etiquette uh, and the traditions of a given society. Yeah. You constrain your behavior in reference to them because you believe in their validity. You don't have to believe in the validity of the police force to conform your behavior to them. Because if you don't conform it, they will conform it for you. Um, And this is what we're losing, is this distinction. Uh, De Tocqueville said that is something to the effect, I wish I could remember this quote uh, exactly because he puts it so poetically. He says, but as the moral tie in society is relaxed, the political tie will strengthen. And that's exactly what we're seeing today, not only uh, within the borders of the United States, but internationally, because the idea that there has to be these these governing authority over the whole thing, uh, rather than uh, the ability of communities and families and cultures to replenish society. Yeah, the state has always been threatened by alternate allegiances, uh, not only the family which is why Karl Marx wanted it destroyed, Mm -hmm. but private property and, of course, preeminently the church. In those remarks, you went on to stress the need for solidarity as a fundamental social virtue. And I think if you could explain for our listeners, what is the Catholic understanding of solidarity? And I I think that that's that's a social teaching of the church that so well kind of gets us out out of the... um, you know, conservative liberal bifurcation of the, you know, progressive conservative um, right. th- thing. Which is breaking apart now anyway. Yeah. Right? 
I mean, is the is the present administration in Washington D.C. conservative or liberal? I mean, by all of the previous categories of how we defined what was conservative or or progressive, what is this in terms of economics, in terms of trade policy, in terms right. of family, in terms of culture, uh, in terms of all of that? It 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 scrambles the whole thing. Yeah, uh, solidarity in the teaching of the church is simply the recognition of ourself and the other. It's saying, you know, I'm, there's something about the other that I recognize in me. And so I can't be autonomous in, in a radical sense. I'm autonomous in a biological sense, of course, but in, in a, a metaphysical sense, if you, if you will, or in a social sense, there has to be some connection between me and other human beings because I'm not just individual. I'm also a social being. I, I begin this way in my mother's womb. I'm physiologically distinct from her. I have my own DNA, but I'm also in relation to her. And the whole of our life after that is that, that we are, you know, uh, in relationship and yet individual. And, and, and it's balancing this. What solidarity, especially when seen in conjunction with its complementary principle, subsidiarity, yes. Uh, this forms human community, and of course the basis of that is the family. Where you have solidarity, you can more easily recognize yourself in your brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also have to see that there is uh, a similarity or a solidarity, a commonality with ourselves and all other human beings, because our origin is the same. So when we disregard that and when we substitute authentic solidarity, uh, authentic, as one French um, economist, Friedrich Bastiat, called it fraternité, mm -hmm. the fraternity, mm -hmm. when we substitute that with the state, which also claims to want to promote solidarity, you end up with not uh, solidarity, social cohesion, social interrelatedness, but socialism. You know, socialism is the imposed socializing of society, which ends up, oddly enough, paradoxically enough, in the atomization of society rather than its solidarity. Um, do, you, do you think that young people today, when they say that they, um, th there's more enthusiasm for socialism on college campuses today and there's more openness to it? amongst uh, young voters. That was at evidence with Bernie Sanders' campaign, for example. Um, and we can go into the educational... Um, there's, there's obviously reasons why, why that is, but is part of that um, because at some level there is a recognition of what you're talking about, that there is this yeah. need for the other, there is this realization that we uh, we need to to care for the other and think of our interests in relation to the other person and in the the common mind these days and in in kind of the pop cultural political world uh, free markets are associated with uh, consumerism with uh, materialism with individualism and not right. with these other um, right. more organic, natural uh, kind of ideas that you're speaking to. Do you, is there anything there? Yeah, I think there's a lot there. Um, 
I think in addition to that, there are there's a certain lacuna in terms of econo- basic economic understanding. Because yeah. a lot of these young people, uh, I remember during the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, which, by the way, I have to say, I, I found refreshing uh, in its honesty. Uh, at least now we have a Democrat who, who identifies himself as a socialist. <laughs> because for so long, Democrats just wanted to run away from that. I'm sure it's partially because of the McCarthy era and, and all yeah. the distaste uh, around that. But at least we get the cards on the table now. You know, his um, recent suggestion of uh, single-payer health care is is good in the sense that now we are clarified rather than the the mumbo jumbo and uh, confused categories that the Republicans are coming up with in terms of the alternative to Obamacare, which itself didn't have the courage of its own convictions, because mm-hmm. I think President Obama wanted a single payer system, but didn't think politically he could achieve that. All of this, I think, is the result of a lack of understanding of basic principles that you can't consume what you haven't first produced. And in order to have a society that produces an abundance of resources, an abundance of things, and and healthcare has to be part of that because it involves human labor. People have to be paid uh, to research. They have to be paid to care for people and uh, all of the rest of it. When When you have this lacuna, and then you have an atmosphere that invites the passion, which I lived in, in the early 1970s, I was part of that. I, I look back at myself and see that I had great passion for these ideas, but didn't understand mm-hmm. uh, these basic concepts. Uh, the the result is that somebody was interviewed, was a campaigning for Bernie Sanders, and was asked, "Well, what is socialism?" And they said, "Well, it has something to do with social media," uh, and it doesn't, <laughs> of course. Socialism doesn't even have to do with a concern for community, right. because community is a natural thing. You know, I mean, businesses are communities, uh, industries are communities of people right. that spontaneously uh, come about. It's when it's forced mm-hmm. that's the problem, and that becomes dangerous. But I do think you're right in identifying this this hankering, this desire, this recognition that there's something that there has to be an alternative to Ayn Rand. You know, if that's what we mean by the free society, uh, then, then, then something is sorely lacking there. We are by nature also social. I don't just say social. We're also social because we're also individual Mm -hmm. and it's this balance of the two. This is why the, the subsidiarity and the solidarity thing goes so well together. Yeah. That we have to provide, you know, uh, uh, one phrase that was used uh, during the Bush administration was compassionate conservatism. Uh, that gets begins to get a little bit at it, but it's not quite uh, the thing. So I do think there is a natural yearning, and we have to have these discussions uh, whereby we can turn down the rhetoric and the anger and the in-your-faceness that has been promoted by the social media and by, frankly, a lot of the talk shows, uh, and just have a, a calm conversation where we really do disagree, even passionately disagree, but still have a fundamental respect for the other. 
Are you hopeful that this is a, this is a crucible that we're in and that something uh, that good will come out of these years of, uh, of struggle and strain? <laughs> I have to be hopeful. I'm <laughs> commanded to be hopeful. <laughs> right. Uh, my, my mood on any given day, if I haven't had my requisite cup of coffee in the morning, is not at all hopeful. Mm. Uh, I think it's such a jumbled mess right now that we really do need to have uh, inter, the inter, intervention of Our Lady Untire of the Knots. Indeed. <laughs> because we, we've just knotted everything up so. But I am hopeful because, uh, well, here's the via negativa. This thing won't work. Mm-hmm. We can't go on like this. Right. Now, the problem is going to be that before we get to the other side of it, there's going to be a lot of destruction if we don't stop this. If we don't back off of it and begin to have a civil conversation, which doesn't mean giving up our principles. I want to emphasize that again. It's just, it begins with civility. You know, at the Acton Institute, we work with a real variety of people from different religious traditions and certainly ethnicities and the like. And what we found is that when we focus on uh, an authentic concern for the vulnerable, for the poor, and study the study of economics as a way to help us find institutions and systems and concrete policies that would you know begin to approach those that as we move toward those things, we end up moving toward each other and can have more profound debates and conversations over our differences, our ethnic or our religious theological differences. So maybe that's a model, you know, let's, let's not focus on the whole thing, but let's focus on some concrete things together and see if we can move toward that and then find ourselves moving towards each other as well. Well, so that's a, such a good sentiment and a good plan for action to end on father. I want to, to thank you again. And I thank you so much for being on with us today, uh, father Robert, and I hope our paths cross again and we can speak another time. I'd like that, Thaddeus. Thank you very much. All right. Please pray for me. Please pray for me, too. I will, sir. Bye-bye now. God bless.